Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When a person does something questionable, almost always defenders step forward to say he's a good man or she has good intentions, as if either statement can erase the outcome of a person's mistakes. Even worse, both statements openly contradict Scripture. In the biblical tradition, No one is righteous but God, and our intentions, no matter how principled, are irrelevant, since only the intention of the Lord's commandment has the power to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Whatever our intentions, the things we do and the things that we make demonstrate the truth of the Lord's wisdom in Genesis that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth up. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 225 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we talked last week about the ongoing decline of David's seed. It's an anticlimactic genealogy in this sense, because even when we get to Jesus, there's a big question mark as to what the true relationship between David and and Jesus is. And so we pick up with verse 9. Oziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Now, one of the things that we talk about often, Richard, is the irrelevance of good intentions and the impossibility, and maybe we've not said this explicitly often enough, the nature of institution is such that The best of intentions and the highest ideals cannot save the things that men build from corruption. I want to say it again because we've been held captive in our culture by a kind of false idealism that believes in the possibility of making human institutions that are somehow beneficent. But we know from Scripture that only God is beneficent and that God is presented to us through the written teaching of the Bible. And so in this sense, only the wisdom of the written word is beneficent towards the human race. The way that the Bible handles human institution is by constantly criticizing it so that far from becoming something good or hopeful, it's managed as something kept in check. 
Solomon was going to build a house for God. He dedicated it to God. He offered long prayers, huge sacrifices, but it was all built on slave labor. He had to oppress his people and all the people around in order to build this institution to, quote, the glory of God, unquote. How is this to the glory of God? This is to the glory of Solomon. This is what happens time and time again. Another problem that keeps coming up in First and Second Kings is the problem of idolatry and how the people are worshiping. And I've written extensively on this. The problem with idolatry is that you are looking to the work of your own hands to provide for you. You try to provide for yourself. You've got a closed loop. You do not look outside of yourself to provide. And so the only way is to push and force those around you to provide what you want when you aren't getting what you want. And the kings function this way when they reign. How are they leading the people to worship? And when I say worship, I don't want to talk about simply the narrow forms of this or that sacrifice, because Hosea talks about how that's actually irrelevant, but how are they treating their neighbor? This is the way that they worship. It's how do they manifest the teaching of their God? Are they manifesting the teaching of Yahweh, or are they manifesting the teaching of Baal? Individually, these kings may be judging correctly, but if the people are still worshiping Baal or worshiping whatever god they feel like, they're worshiping the god of their feelings. And Solomon, when he worshiped his feelings, created a wonderful temple and oppressed everyone around him. Trusting your feelings, worshiping your feelings is the worst kind of sin that you can commit because you're no longer manifesting Yahweh's teaching, Yahweh's Torah, which means that you treat others with compassion, with kindness, and that you know his teaching. Jotham you could say, is the idealist with good intentions who's trying to do the right thing. But yet during his time, you already see the slow decline in the southern kingdom. The name Jotham means the Lord is upright. And we explained how all of these meanings are ironic. There's still conflict going on with Israel, with other nations, and we're just two verses away from the deportation to Babylon. And his son Ahaz, who figures prominently in Isaiah, is a king who, despite the best intentions of his father, pushes the southern kingdom further into decline by appealing to someone other than the Lord for help during the siege of Jerusalem. He wants to appeal to the foreign king. And this problem pertains specifically to the question of idolatry, Richard, that you raise. Because when you follow a foreign king, you follow the deity or deities of that king. And so suddenly, once again, we find the desire for security in the reign of Ahaz leading the people away from their obedience and their singular duty to study and to live according to God's law, his Torah. One cannot stress enough the decline that begins here in verse 9 with the good intentions of Jotham. So the Lord is upright. The Lord is honest in the name Jotham. Yahweh is to be trusted But Jotham himself is not to be trusted. And again, don't fall in the trap of saying, well, he was a good man or he wasn't a good man. We know what Jesus will teach us later in the New Testament, that no one is good but God. And we know that this teaching didn't come originally from Jesus. 
that it's the teaching of the Old Testament, that man's desire from his youth up is for sin and corruption. So listen to these names always, but think of the irony as well. All these other names have a Yo or a Yeho or an El. Ahaz does not. In the ancient Near East, it was very common to have the name of God in someone's name, but not always. And so we have this example, Ahaz, he took, he grabbed, he grasped. It just is he, which leaves it ambiguous. Now, some scholars would say, oh, it just left off that element. It normally should have that element. Maybe if you were at the hospital in the natal ward, it would be like that. But we're in the Bible. And in the Bible, these names are telling a story. And the fact that the name is ambiguous, who took, who held, who grasped? This is precisely the problem of these kings. If the king is following Torah, then it is the Lord who holds, the Lord who grasps the kingdom. If not, then it's the king himself as a human being who simply grasps the kingdom, just like we saw with Solomon. Solomon, in the beginning, began by grasping the Lord with wisdom, and the Lord allowed there to be peace in his kingdom. But as soon as he strayed, he followed himself. He followed his own wisdom, and he himself took hold. And this is what happened with Ahaz. And now Ahaz was a problem because he grasped the kingdom by looking for protection with other kingdoms and with other powers. And this is the people that came from the Lord who was able to defeat the entire Egyptian army by his strong hand. But Ahaz doesn't believe that this is going to be enough for him. Ahaz has to go and look to other powers as strong as Egypt for strength not realizing that the one who defeated Egypt is there for him to serve if he just allows himself to serve rather than serving his own ego. So Ahaz, who took, who grasped? That's my question. That's the question that his name raises. It's funny, too, because Ahaz is clinging to power. He's clinging to security. And when Jerusalem is threatened, he turns to the Lord to ask for help. He's shaking in his boots. He doesn't trust in the Lord. And the sign that is given is that women will have children, meaning life is going to go on. That is my wisdom for you. Life will go on whether or not you're saved. I'm telling you that I will take care. I'm telling you to trust in me. I mean, if someone says to you, I'm afraid of being destroyed, and your answer is life will continue. It might not be the answer you want, but according to Scripture, it's the answer that one should trust. There will be hope. And remember that ultimately what God wants is inclusive of the Assyrians. This is difficult for addressees of the Old Testament because we've been so programmed that the Old Testament is the story of Israel or the history of the people of Judah. It is not the history of the people of Judah. The Old Testament is the story of God's mercy and God's effort to take care of all of the nations of the earth. Why then would Ahaz turn towards outsiders for help? That's the question. And we all know that when you are responsible for governing, no matter how well-intentioned a president is, once he or she takes the office, they will be forced to become a hypocrite because it's the nature of the institution. You cannot talk about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and at the same time oversee bombings in Yemen or strategize and plan for an invasion of Syria. 
Now, you can argue politics till you're blue in the face and reasons why and reasons why not. I don't care. I'm talking about scripture. What I'm saying is that you cannot be the king of Judah without opposing God. You cannot. And this is the message that we have to hear about our human institutions. No one is righteous. I was chatting with someone yesterday, and we were reflecting on how we're all trapped by consumer culture. And he was explaining how he tries then to buy less and own less and have less. But my point was, while that's admirable, even if you were living in isolation in a cave in the wilderness like the monks of old, you still are not righteous. You haven't somehow escaped the reach of human institution because somehow a piece of bread still comes to your mouth and someone had to toil in order for that to take place and someone is hungry while you're eating. That's the radicality of the scriptural message. And so this emphasis highlights the novelty of the kingship of Jesus and the way in which his reign brings to an end all the other kingdoms of the earth. Not insofar as Jesus is establishing an actual empire that everyone has to submit to, but that the kingdom proposed in the teaching he carries has the power to transcend the human institutions that we are stuck with. And it has the power to set us free from the tyranny of these institutions, especially, not even, but especially the institutions that we control and that we think we control for our betterment and for the common good. It's not the case, Richard. We all fail to trust the Lord in a different way. That's what makes us individuals, is that we have our own individual way of not trusting the Lord. One person is faithless in that he wants to own as much as he can. Another person is faithless while he doesn't own very much. He does not treat his neighbor with kindness or love. We all have our way of disobeying God. Jotham was okay in the sight of God, but the people were worshiping and burning incense to idols, whereas Ahaz was worshiping the idols himself under every green tree, it says. The idolatry with Ahaz himself was run amok. And then when he had to make a deal with the Assyrians to fight against Syria, he not only went to Assyria to say, hey, I want you to be my king, essentially. I want you to fight on my behalf. This is what they were complaining about in Israel in 1 Samuel 8, the first time they asked for a king. Now the king of Judah wants Assyria to provide protection, just as the Israelites wanted their king to do. So now we have King Ahaz who fights, and he is victorious, or at least Assyria is victorious on his behalf. And then what does he do? He goes to Damascus and He likes the altar that they have in their temple. So he says, hey, let me add that altar to my temple. Even these people he's defeated, he wants to emulate their worship and emulate their gods. The one who he just defeated through Assyria. Ahaz is a big problem because in every possible way, he rejects God's teaching. And by rejecting God's teaching, he sets himself apart as being particularly bad. Now, I don't want people to rank them and say Ahaz is lower than Jotham because Jotham was a little bit better or whatever. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That's what we have to remember. The flavor of unrighteousness might differ, but we don't find one king who's better than the other. And that's why when people idolize Hezekiah. Well, he was righteous. He was a positive figure. Well, yes, Hezekiah acted correctly and made every effort to reform and 
pushed idolatry to the best of his ability out of the temple. This is correct, but what did it lead to? I want to go back to this basic point. Hezekiah means God is my strength, or you could say the strength of God, or God is mighty. But the point is that it is God who is mighty, and that Hezekiah, of his own accord, could not achieve any outcome except the eventual deportation to Babylon in verse 11. You have to look at this seriously. And again, it's useful here, I think, to talk about politics, because if you look at the way even modern governments work, and it's nice in the United States because we've been able to cycle through leaders very quickly, you can see that no matter who is in office, there's a trajectory. It might ebb and flow and meander a bit, but there's an institutional trajectory. And there's no one president, there's no Supreme Court that can truly turn the ship in a different direction. There's something more primary, more fundamental going on in our public institutions that can only be addressed by wisdom and a reform of everybody who participates in and communes with the institution, including the people. In order for this to happen, in order for the reign of our institution to be interrupted or disrupted by the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to make the effort to study the teaching. This is the hope that is proposed by the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of his Father. And the difficulty is that even though Hezekiah, again, made the effort to focus the people on the study of Torah as their primary duty as a people, he still failed. It's a powerful statement, Richard. Yes, and the line that we see running throughout is, like you said, Father, the institution. The institution is problematic. The institution has a Torah of its own. It has a teaching of its own, and it is opposed to Yahweh's teaching. And with that Torah comes alignment with other nations, worshiping of whatever gods happen to be popular among the other nations. It doesn't allow one to follow the Torah of Yahweh exclusively. The Torah of Yahweh exclusively is about kindness and charity, and that's one thing we don't notice ever in these lists of the kings. How are they treating the poor? How are they treating those who were oppressed in their kingdom? The only time we hear about it is with Solomon, and he treated them badly. He created oppressed people. So by creating oppression, we see that this is the beginning of the end, because this is the clearest public denial of Yahweh's Torah. David denied Torah by committing adultery and murder in order to have the woman that he wanted. Like I said, everyone rejects God in their own way. So we'll continue next week with the children of Hezekiah and the outcome of his efforts to reform and the implications of the deportation to Babylon. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.